This is U.S. Research Software Engineer Stories, coming straight at you from USRSC, the U.S. Research Software Engineer Association. Welcome to RSC Stories. Today I have joining me Greg Lemieux from Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, who is an Earth and Environmental Sciences Engineer and very passionate about developing scientific software. Greg is our first guest from a national lab, and I'm excited to hear about his experience and what it's like being a research software engineer that is having really big impact with respect to some fairly important topics in our daily lives. So first, Greg, welcome. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got involved and interested in environmental sciences? Yeah, sure. I have somewhat of a non-traditional background. I actually went to school for aerospace engineering because I was very interested in space exploration. It's been one of the things that has always fascinated me growing up in Maine, looking up at the stars at night. And so I went off to school to study aerospace engineering because I wanted to get involved in some way. During that time, though, having also grown up, you know, kind of in the backwoods of Maine, I had a very definite interest and love in trees and the forest that was right out in my backyard. So I had looked into doing an environmental engineering or some sort of environmental science during my undergraduate as well, and ultimately decided to stick with aerospace. Got my degree program, and as I went along into the professional world, um, working for at first university labs and then into the commercial world, I found that I really enjoyed the actual work of simulation and computational modeling and trying to improve the computational models that went along with research that I was supporting and also the design engineering work that I was doing. One of the tacks that I took within my career about maybe eight years after I graduated was to focus much more on astrodynamics and orbit mechanics. And a lot of the work in that realm, a lot of the computational horsepower behind that is using programming software that is still based in Fortran. And not only in Fortran, but in Fortran 77, because that's where a lot of the initial code was written. A lot of the code that I've been working with was based off of code developed by Goddard. The Goddard Trajectory Determination System, or GTDS. So a lot of my work has had me dealing with old Fortran code and either developing code around that or actually dealing with trying to understand the code and develop some similar application to produce a, the same sort of output and the same sort of calculation, but maybe in a different language. Like very often in the aerospace world, that tends to be MATLAB. That's the real kind of brief overview of what my background looked like. I was an aerospace engineer with interests in other subjects as well, but really as I started to delve into the professional day-to-day -day life, I really came to find that I really enjoy writing code to support scientific software development and other research. I have a lot of questions. So let's go back to where you said you're interested in space and the stars from when you were small. I'm guessing, is it correct to say that when you were a kid, you wanted to be an astronaut? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, just the idea of being like being in space at the time as a kid, you think, 
oh, if I could just be up there and see what it's like to see the earth, that must be an amazing experience and to float around and to do any sort of quote unquote, like job that was required would be awesome. I thought about, oh, maybe I should go into the Air Force and try and become a test pilot, or maybe I become a you know research scientist and become a mission support engineer. But it, ultimately, the looking at how challenging and how rigorous that work is, I know it's, it's being a dream that everybody has, but it's also it's a really tough, tough job having gotten to meet some of the people who have worked with astronauts directly. And they go through some really rigorous stuff. And in the end, I was like, you know, if I could just support this, that would be cool too. Like the idea of working on the trajectory solutions for, you know, a probe going to Venus or something like that also kind of lights my fire so to speak you know, that thinking of that when i was you know younger would be like oh it'd be so cool to be able to say yeah i planned this mission i helped plan this mission very broadly what does it take in terms of technology planning resources to design a mission oh boy <laughs> that is a very broad question what i would say is you have a general goal in mind there's a project investigator, you know, a project lead scientist comes up with a particular question that they have that they want to investigate and a team of researchers, and they all come together and write a proposal to investigate that question. And they say, here's how we think we're going to do it. And one of the parts of that is, here's the mission design. Everything at that phase is basically a prototype. It's a white paper, you could almost say. And there's subsections to that proposal that address each of the necessary parts of the investigation, probably the primary one being, here's the fancy new instrument that we have to build that has never existed before, or the variation on you know an existing instrument to try and investigate this. What a mission designer does then is basically takes all of those requirements and says, okay, I need to get from off the rocket here and get to this point at my designated observation space here. And typically they'll break the sections of the mission up into segments based on what the broad goal of that particular mission segment is. Ultimately, you're getting to the observation phase or the science phase of the mission where all of the that's what all, you know, all of it's leading up for. That's what all the taxpayer dollars are for, is to get good science out and to get good data down. So that's what a mission designer does. It's trajectory planning and optimization and general mission organization <laughs> about, and planning about how a lot of the scheduled activities are likely to be going. Wowie, that's a lot. What are some of the major dependencies when you decide to write a piece of software? I'm guessing that a lot of them might have to do with the equipment or that you're building on code that already exists that might be written in a particular language. So based on that, I guess that a lot of the languages are sort of old school or yeah. not what you'd see if you visit a startup in Silicon Valley. Is, you know, is, is there going to be someday that we will have space gear that's programmed in Rust or Golang? You know, what is the future? Yeah, so I'd say there are probably two broad 
dependencies, and, and, and a dependency might even be too strong a term for one of them. The first kind of follows the, the KISS principle, you know, they keep it simple, stupid principle, in that if something works well and works within the required sensitivity that you need, you're probably not going to try and spend the overhead to write something brand new to only buy back a certain amount of improvement. So for that reason, you know, a lot of development in flight software trajectory optimization code really came out of the Apollo era. And a lot of code coming out of NASA is used within commercial environments today as well and works as the backbone to either commercial office shelf software that industry then buys from people or original source code in some cases that has been since uh, open source back then might not have been the right term, but has been open sourced so that companies have them in their core code. So it, a lot of it is aerospace is really an expensive endeavor, both research oriented aerospace or commercially focused. So a lot of it is any improvements that get made to writing a piece of code has to determine what's the amount of effort that goes into this, how long will it take? And then the actual kind of real hard dependency is how long will it take to verify this? Because you need to qualify the code for, if it's something on the ground, it's probably a little bit easier to get through a validation process. If it's something that's actually on board the spacecraft, it's even much more rigorous. And there's a whole separate suite of software techniques that I've only had the, the barest taste of during my time having to do with fault detection, interrupt and recovery, which is its whole other platform of software that has to interact with the software that goes on board. And thinking about also what you have available for you in terms of real memory space and processing power. You know, a lot of the processors are, as if I understand correctly, nowadays it's getting harder and harder to find radiation hardened equipment. You know, some places are actually developing their own hardening techniques or doing some sort of really sophisticated cross-strapping of processors to run multiple sets of the same process in parallel so that if you have an interrupt on one, you can easily switch over to the, to the next one for mission-critical applications. There are a lot of unusual constraints in the aerospace world that don't exist in, you know, the terrestrial, you know, Silicon Valley world. And in some ways, that's really interesting because it forces you to come up with really interesting solutions and to really get to the crux of what you're dealing with. And it really limits mission creep when it comes to like our feature creep, you might say. Like, yes, it would be nice if we could do this as well, but we only have so much capability or so much time or so much memory space. So we really have to restrict it to only doing this much. And unfortunately, because the aerospace world doesn't iterate, you could say, terribly quickly, because missions take, you know, anywhere from two to, depending on the complexity, like five, 10 years to develop the software around that doesn't iterate as fast as well. And because it's mission critical, you're going to be much more reluctant to iterate that mission critical software because the money probably just isn't there to be able to do it, even if you wanted to. Given the extensive training that you obviously need, is there some issue or will there be some issue with, with training people that can keep the, the program and the missions going? Oh, for sure. Yeah, that's one of aerospace's perennial struggles is not having a consistent 
level of funding coming in, which also is very common in other research endeavors in academia. It means that it's really hard to both perpetuate the necessary skills for the next generation to come along to take up this particular project that you might be working on or this particular piece of code that is really key to making a, a lot of mission critical systems work. You know, say one or two people end up retiring or leaving, that means it's all that more hard to continue the development and the optimization and even just sometimes the bare maintenance of that particular code because it's something that seems that like, well, it, it obviously works, so it's just going to continue to work, right? Well. But as the interfaces change and as new mission requirements come in requiring higher precision or something like that, you end up having to improve that code that already exists. And if you have only you know, a skeleton crew trying to work on that, it can be really hard both to get people interested in it. Because if you see only a few people working on it, people might not be interested in actually coming into it. There's not a lot of support and there's a lot more effort in trying to convince people that the work that you're doing is respected and, and interesting if it's not being funded terribly well, you know? No, I definitely agree. And it sounds like some kind of horror story to have some mission critical software that 10 years pass. Oh, it's working great. And then it breaks and everyone looks around. Does anyone know how to fix this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Documentation is always the thing that is really key and real primary importance. But it's also very hard to maintain that because documentation is also not the most fun part of the job that you have to do. And there's only so much also that you can necessarily get into a requirements document. So if there's a student that's in college or early graduate school and they're really interested in this kind of work, what should they study? How should they get involved? Unlike a lot of paths in academia, it seems like there's not a clear, this is the path that I want to follow. I want to be an RSC that's working on these cool problems. That's a really good question. And that's actually, in general, maybe even if mission design isn't your thing, but doing some sort of programming within the aerospace world is, there's going to be a lot of math. So you're going to need a, a good knowledge of the subject matter that you're going to be working within. So you're going to want to have a solid background in mathematics and the particular subject application, whether it be controls or trajectory design or something like that. And then I will say having a solid background in computer science as well. From an aerospace perspective, I would say, unfortunately, I feel like most post-bachelor's degree work, there's not going to be a lot of programs that, that are out there that have a good blend of those two things. There are some schools who are well known for working in those areas because it's such a small field in general. That's not unsurprising, but you do find that the group of people and the group of academics that study in those field and push the field forward is very small because of that. Purdue University has a well-known astrodynamics group that includes a decent amount of computer science work as well, as does CU Boulder and a few others called the University of Illinois. That They have very well-known established aerospace departments and within those departments have professors that specialize in working on pushing the boundaries of you know, trajectory design or attitude and control design and software within that framework as well. And they couple the two matters fairly well. This is a very naive question, but what's the difference between a research software engineer that works at NASA versus one that works in a national lab? 
That's a very good question. In my current role, this is my first time I've actually worked at a national lab, although the previous lab that I worked at, at the Space Sciences Lab at UC Berkeley, is interesting. I, I sometimes call it a mini JPL because its founding and its management is very similar to the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, um, and that they're focused on pushing forward research and proposing missions for specific subsets of space science generally, like the physics of the sun, the physics of the magnetosphere, as opposed to like extraterrestrial planetary physics like JPL does. And in that sense, JPL and Space Sciences Lab aren't field centers like NASA Ames or NASA Goddard. So in some ways, I would almost posit the NASA field centers like Goddard are similar in ways to like a national research lab like Livermore or Lawrence Berkeley, where I work now. So I couldn't really say with a lot of certainty what the difference is between them. In some ways, I'm still trying to gauge what the administrative and funding structures within the national lab are like and what are the challenges that career researchers that work at the national labs have in sourcing funding and whatnot. I guess it takes the academia model, which is the hairwall model of funding. <laughs> yeah, I, that's my understanding as well. I think that would be a good good guess. Can I ask you some questions about the specific research that you do? Are you still working on research that pertains to things involving the environment like trees or air quality? Most of my work right now, I work on the NG Tropics project, Next Generation Ecosystem Experiments. And within that project, I'm working on the FATES model, which is the Functionally Assembled Terrestrial Ecosystem Simulator. The FATES model is, as it says in the name, simulates and models the growth and dynamics and death with of cohorts of trees within an ecosystem. And this can be applied all over the world. In fact, its base use case is for global models of forest ecosystem. So right now, the FATES model is being improved and extended to include updates from the previous model, which was called ED, which is good for ecosystem demographic, and is included is a smaller component that is included in larger host models. The one that we are primarily funded for is the Department of Energy model called E3. SM. It's a global climate model, next generation global climate model. And my work within that right now is actually mostly, I would almost say kind of the, the nitty gritty day-to-day -day development and support work that a software engineer in, in a lot of different industries does, which is planning out code improvements, actually programming those improvements, doing refactoring and optimization efforts, working through a series of testing, and then also creating new tests to improve our validation and then working with the researchers to help them understand any particular issues that they have. A fair amount of my work is actually squashing bugs that they post on our GitHub repository, or maybe something a little bit more sophisticated in that they're trying to they're trying to attempt some sort of software improvement by adding in some new algorithm just that just isn't working the way they expect. And I'll go in to try and help them understand what might be the process. Most of the people I work with that are doing research are the people that I support um, in trying to help them extend and improve the software. And I think that you're touching on one of the synergistic relationships between RSCs and researchers. The researchers sort of provide the compelling questions and the RSCs build the things to empower them to answer them. 
So let's shift a little bit away from the software engineering side and a little more towards the environmental science side. It's really interesting that your life has involved trees in so many different ways. And I'm really quite tickled by something that I saw in your history, that you were a tree climber. Could, could you tell us a little more about that? Oh, boy. <laughs> Why well, I picked the tree business in general and tree climbing in particular was because I had read about Dr. Steve Sillett, who I believe is still a professor at Humboldt University, who is doing canopy research and was climbing trees, I think, as he put it, like in this very rudimentary manner very early on. And he met some arborists, I believe, who basically taught him, like, no, this is the way you go about climbing trees without damaging the tree. And that's what really got me interested. And so climbing trees sounds really cool. It sounds like something I can do, try and do right away. So I'm going to go and do that. And the particular company I worked with also had a program where they would allow people who work for them if they wanted to go off to become professional arborists and get like an MS degree in forest ecology or something like that. One of the things that was really unique and special about this company, which is called The Care of Trees, was that I was able to be in a redwood tree that was in somebody's backyard in Menlo Park that had been there for ages and ages actually pruning it, doing work to try and help it avoid a, maybe a particular limb was failing and taking that out so it wouldn't damage someone's property. And then the next week or two later, actually go to a conference in San Francisco with other arborists and forest ecologists where they would be talking about the latest advancements in understanding forest biology, tree biology and forest ecosystems and how they wanted to push forward the science and the practice of arboriculture. And that was always endlessly fascinating to me. I felt really lucky that I found that company when it existed to be able to have both the look into the research and science side of things and then turn around and see it be applied by the arborists that were on staff and then go and climb trees. What can the average person who isn't an arborist do to help tree health? Unfortunately, probably a lot of it has more to do with urban land use policy and urbanization in general. In some ways, I almost feel like it, understanding the importance of how our choices as individuals in impacting how we use the land around those forested spaces probably would be of the most impact. And unfortunately, it's not really a, a fun answer to hear, but I would say that probably from an individual standpoint, supporting people in politics and in land use policy that understand that and are trying to work towards a healthier like urban and forest ecosystem environment is probably the thing that is the most impactful for an individual to do. Ultimately, it's our collective decisions that are going to shape how those ecosystems survive into the future. I think I agree with that too. So we're coming up on time and I'm trying to pick my questions carefully. What is your favorite thing about being a research software engineer? <laughs> so my favorite thing about being a research software engineer is, it sounds probably pretty trite, but it's really getting to code every day. I really love being in the code every day. As much as I may be banging my head against the wall trying to figure out some weird bug that I introduced or that somebody else introduced, it's that process and that problem solving and that day-to-day -day work is what I really, really enjoy. That's funny. I'd say almost the exact same thing with one small detail added. 
I really like the coloring of the code in my text editor. I use Get It in Ubuntu. The syntax highlighting, the colors against the cobalt blue background is just beautiful every time that I open up my computer to work on something. And you know, I imagine there's some sort of visual addiction thing going on there. But generally, as, as programmers, I think we fall in love with our favorite tools and they keep us coming back for more. And I don't know, maybe that's super embarrassing to admit, but it's it's totally true. No, no, no. I, I I can totally appreciate that. There's a whole, you know, that's why a whole themes, you know, exist out there. There's so much for people to choose from because everybody has a particular coloration that they like. Greg, it was so great having you today and hearing your perspective and what it means to design a space mission. One thing I find really interesting is that a lot of us have some kind of bias about what a research software engineer is. You know, I see a lot of diagrams that lay it out too simply to be some dimension between programmer and researcher, but they're totally missing the details that you might be designing space missions or climbing trees. And I could never have imagined your story before hearing it. And you know, that's exactly why we need to hear stories like yours. So thank you for, for coming on and sharing your story. Yes, definitely. And thank you for doing this for that exact reason. I feel very much the same way. It's really great to hear the stories from all of the people in the community and all, all the diversity that we have and to know that we're, we're out there uh, enjoying the same thing.